0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, UFO Warning. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about an incident that happened in Falcon Lake, Manitoba, back on May 20th, 1967. Now, Falcon Lake, Manitoba is located, oh, I don't know, it must be 60, 70 miles north of the border of Minnesota and Manitoba. If you just look at the map on the U.S., of course, Minnesota's in the middle of the state, and it borders uh, Canada on its northern end go about 50 miles or so north and there is Falcon Lake and the Trans Canada Highway runs not far from there now there's a little bit of interesting side note on this as far as as far as uh, Manitoba province goes where this case happened at Um, some some interesting backstory actually it's about the legislative building north of theirs the government that where the government has their legislature at and it's known for its unique uh, architecture. Quite a bit of uh, stuff online about this. It's done in the Masonic style from when it was built. And it's a beautiful building. And uh, supposedly built to the exact uh, ratio of Solomon's Temple. And uh, interesting side note, when you walk in, the main receptive area there is 66.6 or 66.6 feet Uh On each side a perfect square 666 kind of a little hoot and then it also has some other um, really interesting numerical uh, phenomena about it that was kind of built into it that goes along with uh, what some people consider uh, occult symbology there but a lot of neat uh, really fascinating paranormal stuff in the uh, Manitoba region there so this is a good fit for this kind of a story, I think. So what happened was the fellow's name was Stephen uh, uh, Milficek. Let's see here. Yeah, M-I-C-H-A-L-A-K, Stephen Michalak, I think is how you pronounce that. He was a Polish immigrant to Manitoba. And uh, looks like he was born maybe around 1915, 1916. He had immigrated uh, from Poland in 1945. And in Poland, he had been a, a military police officer, and I believe by the time of this incident, he was a mechanic. And uh, according to his son, uh, Stan, who's still alive, uh, Stephen uh, Miklick, Mr. Miklick, passed away back in 1999. But according to his son, uh, he was a mechanic, and he was a just a rock hound. He just loved rocks. And that would make sense, too, because where this happened at on Falcon Lake, um, there's like not necessarily gold deposits there but there's a possibility of that and there there are gold mining operations in manitoba and there were more of them back in the 40s and 50s and 60s and his son said that he was looking for gold he was looking for uh, different kinds of uh rare rock samples he was just out enjoying himself doing some prospecting you know this is 1967 people still went out and did things so according to uh mr and and reports Uh, he left his, he left his home and took a bus to Falcon Lake. This is a big, uh, today it's a big recreational area and you can look on Google maps. It's pretty cool. I mean, a lot of forested area and a remote area. And you could imagine what it would have been like in 1967. I mean, seriously remote back then. So he picks, he, he gets packed up for his trip. He takes his equipment, says his wife packed him lunch for the, the, a day trip. He's going to be there for a day or two it sounds like. He got in, He got a motel near the lake. Says that he arrived there about 9 30 at night and checked in the motel and uh, now according to him he says he went to the bar and had a cup of coffee. Well the bartender says no he had a couple of beers. And some people use that discrepancy to try to uh, ding his story a little bit. But the fact is he was there, he showed up and he goes out uh, into the timber there to do some prospecting. Well, he says about eleven o'clock, he's sat down on a rock or whatever, he's having his lunch, and he notices a flock of geese. And he looks over to see them and make a noise. And uh, when he looks over, he notices uh, a couple of cigar-shaped craft. Now, in the official, in the official um, report they kind of leave out the part about these things change in shape. They say, well, he saw a couple saucers, and that's not exactly what happened. And his son explains too. He was very clear about this. These things were shapeshifters. I mean, he saw these two objects, uh, cigar-shaped craft, and then as they came closer, he noticed that they appeared to be saucer-shaped. In fact, one of them, uh, he, he, really, he really gets a good look at them about 150 feet away and then he says one of them actually landed about a hundred feet away and the other one uh, I guess just disappears. Well the one that landed is there for somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes and he's watching this thing as you could imagine. He says that uh, it made a it made a whirling sound and gradually changed in color from gray to silver. So here we go we have an object He's out there at 11 o'clock in the morning he's doing some prospecting for some rocks he hears the geese making a bunch of noise he looks over he sees two cigar shaped craft. well one disappears the other one comes over lands 150 feet from him and now it's not a cigar shaped it's a clearly a saucer shaped and it's gone from a gray collar to a silver collar then he says uh, the hatch opened it's a fairly good sized object the hatch opened, and the object emitted a bright violet light. Miklavec claimed that he heard voices from within, and that's that. Uh, this, to me, right there, makes the the uh, sighting so cool because how often do you uh, have a sighting where a person has a close encounter like this, and they actually hear voices? But he couldn't. He couldn't uh, tell what kind of voices. He couldn't. He couldn't understand the language. It says he called out to the voices in English, German, Italian. Polish, Ukrainian, and Russian. So this guy, I don't know if he could speak all those languages, but he knew enough of those languages to try to figure out who was in this craft. In his mind, I'm sure he was thinking this is some some sort of deep state project, whether it's from the Canadians or the Americans or the Russians or whatever. And it's almost as if in his mind, he's in survival mode. He's wanting to let these guys know that, hey, I'm not a threat, don't shoot me. It says he was instantly he, so he walks over toward the craft. It says he was instantly pushed back by a force of hot air. The blast, now, now imagine him walking over to this craft. He says he looked inside. He saw these beams of light in one account. He could hear voices. I mean, he's curious, but he's not so curious that uh, he wants to get inside the craft. And one, he also states, and his son states, that he had uh, it had welding gloves on, I suppose, so he could dig around the rocks and stuff, you know, and not, and not uh, break his... His nails up, or you I mean get a hangnail, whatever. So he has these heavy welding gloves on, and he reaches over to that to that open area, and it had melted the gloves. And shortly after that, whatever was inside that craft, he startled him because uh, the door shuts, uh, the thrusters come on, and it literally uh, lights his shirt up. Uh, You can look at the pictures of this guy a couple days later in the hospital room, and it's the most bizarre thing. It looks like someone just put a grill across his stomach. I mean, there's little square burn marks all the way around. Listen, if somebody wanted to fake that, I think that would be a little too much work to go through to lay across, you know, a four-foot-by-three-foot waffle iron. I mean, this had to hurt. Anyway, it says here, after, uh, after he got burnt, he ripped off his clothing, and this is interesting here. Milkovic felt ill. He began to vomit and noticed a metallic smell coming from inside his body, like the burning smell of an electric wire or electric motor. Well, the fact that he vomited right after, this sounds like radiation poisoning. And when you combine that with the fact that when they went back later and checked the site out, it did have uh, highly radioactive uh, signatures coming off of But then they decided that that whatever the radiation was there seemed to wear off pretty quick and they decided that hey it's no big deal we're not going to close the area down this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage no matter what stage you're in Shopify's there to help you grow Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer. Okay, now back to Mr. McLebeck. So he's just seen this UFO land. He's watched it for about 45 minutes. Finally, curiosity got the better of him. He walks over. He looks inside. He sees these violet light beams going up and down inside. He hears voices, but he can't understand them. And when uh, he gets a little too curious, he, he takes his gloved hand and tries to touch inside that craft. The glove, the glove uh, blurs into flames, and the door slams shut. The thrusters come on—I guess you would call them that—and that thing's out of there. And they leave Mr. Mikulovic in a big, uh, a big ball of fire. And he has pictures of his shirt, which actually caught on fire, which he rips off. So he takes off back toward the motel. He has to stop in, in the timber there because he's sick. He throws up. He finally gets back to the motel and uh, he he well he waves down a mountain. They tell him there's no hospital around, they can't help him. So he gets himself together, he gets uh gets he gets on a bus, gets back home, gets his kid, and they go down to the hospital, and he's he's so disoriented and afraid to say anything at first that he tells the hospital that this happened uh, from an airplane well they really weren't buying it. It ends up on March 26 it says Mr. Mikovi was interviewed well he starts losing weight and his appetite and not only does he have burns but he's sick on uh, March 26 1967 Mikolvic was interviewed by CJ Davis of the RCMP. it says here and you can find this on uh, that I got a link to it online on, on the site it says here, He was interviewed by C.J. Davis of the RCMP, Royal Mount Mounted Police. His report describes the burn marks visible on Miklovik's chest. A large burn that covers an area approximately one foot in diameter. The burn was blotchy and with unburned areas inside the burn perimeter area. Now I've got a link and it shows him in the hospital with the burns and and they're nasty but they didn't just heal up like a normal burn. I mean, they got some nasty little sores on them. It took quite a while for these things to heal up. And then it says he had continual, continuing medical problems uh, long after the event. So uh, to kind of wrap this up, the Canadian real man of police get involved when he gives them the story. And at first uh, they weren't sure he was being straight with them about the location. Maybe he was looking for gold. Maybe he thought someone was going to go there and find some precious, you know, ore deposit he didn't want, you know, found out. But eventually, to get back there, it says that uh, they finally, they, 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 the first time they couldn't find it, you know, and they talked to the, they talked, their authorities talked to the bartender, and uh, they were having some doubts about him. But they went back again on June 26th, it says, of 1967, and there they found... Um, the objects he'd left, the burnt clothing, uh, some steel tape, I suppose he was measuring, and some rocks and some soil samples. And this all confirmed, you know, what I said about the radiation. Now it says here, uh, RCMP, RCMP squad leader uh, bisky visited milchevic on the evening of June 26th and obtained the samples of soil brought back from the, the collection. Now when they went out there, they got soil samples and there's something else that they did that was c- kind of crazy they found uh, inside these Precambrian rocks, cracks, they found chunks of metal that could have, it was poured in what was molten, it was obvious. So the investigators, uh, they dug this stuff out, man. They broke these rocks apart and they got multiple pieces of metal. And the one piece online that you can look at in the article that I have linked to on UFOWarning.com, it looks like a piece of rusted angle iron. This doesn't look, it. and the metal, and what they got was uh, the signature of this thing was a, was iridium two fifty six, I believe, which has a couple strange things about it. First off, they they point out in the article in the investigation that iridium two fifty six was commonly used in a lot of different manufacturing processes. So they were leading toward maybe somehow Mr. Milkovecja got this metal and and poured it molten down into these rocks. But you have to ask why, because I looked it up, and this iridium has like a really high melting point. I mean, it would have to get so hot to be able to do that. And this stuff was literally melted into the cracks of the rocks. They had to chip it out. So that part doesn't make any sense. And when you look up where uh, iridium comes from, they say, well, it all came from a giant comet that hit thousands and thousands of years ago. But the dates don't match up for the stuff to be... Melted into these uh, Precambrian rocks. That's not how they find iridium. They find it in nature. When it's found in nature, it's found in the dirt, where you can imagine, like you know, millions of little particles of it that would have dispersed when this uh, super uh, meteor hit that wiped out the dinosaurs. So to say that Mr. Milchovitz went there somehow and staged this metal poured into these uh, rock cracks, or that it somehow happened naturally would seem like a pretty good stretch. It's almost as if something that had the means of melting this stuff put it in there. And that would go more along with the notion that, hey, he's come across this UFO. Somehow it's disabled. That's why it's sitting there. And these <clears throat> whatever was in that thing, uh, they were frantically talking because they were trying to fix what was wrong with the, the thing that they were flying in. And as part of fixing this thing, while it was sitting there, uh, it was dropping as hot, molten, uh, metallic lava down into these rocks. I mean, I could just imagine, I mean, how much energy that would take. And somehow, even in that state, this craft, what, or whatever phenomenon it was, uh, they were able to get it to back up under control and get it out of there. Now, it's, okay, here it says, the, the radioactive material in the found in the rock was radium-226, an isotope in white commercial use and also found in nuclear reactor waste. That's odd. You know, what would you need on an interstellar spacecraft if you didn't need a nuclear reactor? I mean, it's so weird that this would, that that's what it would be. It says, in view of the small quantity of soil contamination, Mr. Hunt determined that there was no danger to humans traveling in the area. So they more or less just said, well, that's fine. Uh, That's the end of the investigation. And there was never, you know, they couldn't say one thing one way or the other. The boy says he was he was bullied at school, that people said his dad was crazy, he was a liar, on and on and on. But uh, they got the last laugh because this year, uh, the Canadian Mint came up with a commemorative coin for the uh, UFO sighting that Mr. Milkovic uh, spotted. And uh, in my total commercial crashness, I could not resist. I had to put a... Uh, amazon picture of it up there it's hilarious but i love the coin it's a little expensive but it's really cool looking and i thought it was so cool that the k could do that um, to wrap it up this this sighting took place this close encounter took place may 20th 1967 but we should keep in mind that there were a couple other encounters that took place that year. One in Duhamel, Alberta, which would be northwest of there. that happened in August of 1967, a couple months later. And that's where craft is uh, described as going down into the water at a local lake up there. I'll try to cover it later. And then there was also another, a third uh, encounter that happened. And that was Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, on October 4th, 1967. Now, this is... A pretty well-known incident, and I believe it was uh, maybe the History Channel or somebody. Probably, probably have been a couple of documentaries done on this. Very interesting case that happened in Shag Harbor, where uh, the UFO went down in the water, documented by lots and lots of witnesses, and then they couldn't find it. So both those things happened right in the same time frame. It's almost as if it's almost as if between May of nineteen, as if in in May nineteen sixty-seven you've got a couple at least UFO and they're in the area right there between Alberta, uh, Manitoba and Nova Scotia and Canada. And these craft are having some kind of mechanical problems because they, you described the one that crashes into the lake in, in, in August. Well, before that you have, you have basically a control crash here in May. Then you have another crash in August and then you have a third incident in October. So, uh, my gosh, you wonder if there was some kind of uh, interference going on there from the, uh, from the United States military possibly that was uh, causing these UFO to, to crash like that or if it was just, uh, you know, something completely unrelated. But you have three situations over a period of just a few months where you have, you have witnesses describe these UFOs that are obviously in a distressed state. Where they're having to take refuge somewhere, and then they're and then they're uh, leaving again. Uh, super interesting cases. Canada's got a lot of really neat UFO stuff and a lot of really well documented stuff. But once again, go to the site, check it out. Plenty of links. And this one here uh, with Mr. Milchovak is one of the neatest because you have a guy who has physical evidence from the close encounter, never backed off his story one time, the whole time. And you have evidence where the craft landed at, where the grass was killed. You have uh, metal that was poured down into molten rock, of which most of the samples disappeared, by the way. How convenient. Lost in the chain of custody, they say. So you have all this evidence on top of this reliable eyewitness account, and it all adds up to one of the neatest uh, UFO cases I've come across in a while. Check it out. That's all for now. Over and out, ufowarning.com.